Hey, welcome to the Metamorphosis Podcast. Uh, we are here today with a special guest. So I'm Jennifer and we've got Val and Val is going to introduce you to our topic today and our guest. Hey, so today we are going to dig deep into addictions and we have Elisa Allen on. If you guys listened to the podcast um, a few weeks ago, she was on. It was so awesome because she um, is a professional so she can, you know, really help us understand how the mind works and how essential oils work um, from you know, a psychology perspective. So we're going to talk about addictions, how they affect um, the addicted individual, how they affect the family members or friends of the individual. And, you know, just kind of talk about how we can um, have some solutions as far as um, dealing with our emotions through the process with essential oils. So Elisa, would you kind of give us, you know, just an overall explanation of addiction and what it typically looks like? Sure. You know, addiction is a big, a big word and it's super popular right now. We get, we throw that word around a lot because like most of us have it. Addiction is a spectrum. It's not necessarily you, whether you are addicted or you aren't addicted, you can be really addicted or not so much addicted. But my favorite way of defining addiction is a negative pattern of relieving pain or solving a problem that results in shame, guilt, or lowered self-esteem. So that's the easiest definition that I can think of. So a negative pattern. So it has to cause some sort of harm. It has to evoke those lower level, lower frequency emotions. Absolutely. Anything that gets us back into thinking in the lower frequency is not, you know, it's not working for us. It's not leading us to be the best version of ourself. Um, And those things tend to become over and over again, rituals that we continue to use and fall upon instead of more positive things. Like you may love to run or use essential oils, but those aren't things that you're going to do that are going to keep you from being your best self. They actually may help you be your best self. Okay. So like these lower level emotions, we talk about this a lot in our podcast and how to attack these lower level emotions and clear them out. So when we're talking about lower level emotions, you mentioned some of them, shame, fear, maybe even getting stuck in anger and bitterness. Absolutely. Um, and so they're like a lower frequency. So they almost feel heavy, like demotivating to rise up and change, make positive change in your life. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And that is another resentment's a big one too. That's another key factor in addiction is that it's not something you can change on your own. Um, because it is so low frequency, it resonates those low frequency vibrations. We can't just pop ourselves out of there. If we could, we would have already done it and we wouldn't have an addiction. Yeah. So what is a good way to identify if I have, like, what if, like, maybe, you know, there's the obvious, well, and sometimes it's not obvious to the addict, but when alcohol or a chemical dependency comes in, you know, sometimes um, it takes some time to realize that you have an actual problem. But what about someone who says, well, I don't drink and I don't, you know, use any other substances. So how do I know if I'm addicted to something? How do you identify that? There's a flowchart on my website I recently created to help with that because that that's been coming up a lot. Basically, though, if you're not your best self and you know you're not, if you find yourself doing the same things over and over again, if you feel disconnected from others, and if there are negative consequences of whatever that thing is, be it religion or sugar or even like marijuana, no cigarettes, no matter what it is, chaos, tumult, conflict, If there are negative things that keep coming up and you keep using that same strategy over and over again to deal with that pain or low frequency stuff, then it's an addiction. I think it's so interesting how you said it's a spectrum because, I mean, that completely makes sense. But I think most people think of addiction as like 
you're on meth and you know, like you're a hot mess completely. But I think it's so much more than that. You know, it's if you constantly go to, um, you know, the cookie jar or, you know, to a glass of wine or whatever it is to deal with your issues, then, you know, you on the spectrum, you may be on the low end, but you have to be careful. Yeah, that's so true. You know, honestly, sometimes for people who have the higher end of the spectrum, they're almost have a little bit of an advantage because their addiction is so easy to see mm-hmm. that it's easier to treat. You know, those of us that are addicted to being everybody's everything or having conflict in relationships, those things are a lot harder to spot and may take a lifetime to identify. Whereas an addiction to opiates or alcohol becomes really um, negative and manifest in very powerful things very, very quickly. Yeah. So I think a lot of people probably will identify with this one, even if you can't identify with the heavier addictions, but isn't, wouldn't you say that society in general is becoming very addicted to their phone and what's going on inside their phone? Absolutely. Absolutely. So true. So many people use cell phones or their screens and you hear it like scrolling as a mindless distraction. Uh, Unfortunately, it becomes your life. People spend up to six to eight hours on their phones, scrolling, accomplishing nothing, feeling nothing, just completely zoned out from their life. And so it's a way to deal with the pain of disconnect in our society. Um, But it's not effective and it causes so much shame, guilt, fear, resentment, jealousy, envy, judgment, all kinds of that lower level stuff. Yeah. How many times like (laughs) have we picked up our phone instead of doing the load of laundry we meant to do. And then we feel bad about ourselves because we got sucked in or we see something on Facebook and we start comparing our lives to somebody else who just, you know, they put a little snippet of the best part of their life on there and we compare. Um, And even, uh, we haven't gotten into like listing all the addictions, but I work a lot from my devices. Like a lot of my job is me looking at my phone and communicating with people. And that's a form of connection, but it's not real connection. Mm -hmm. It can be, I guess if I'm having a real conversation on the phone with somebody, but um, we can even get stuck in our, in our phones for work and call it work and be proud of it. But it can also take away from things that could be fulfilling our lives even more if we were present. Absolutely. Work addiction is a real thing too. People sometimes feel like because they are accomplishing something that it's not an addiction. However, that need and desire to achieve um, can sometimes numb the pain of not feeling competent in a relationship or not feeling genuine and authentic. You know, in a work relationship, people don't really have the open, honest, vulnerable contact that you have in personal relationships. So it may feel like connection, but sometimes it's not true connection. All right. So I have a question. I have a theory, but obviously you see a lot more people with this issue that have are aware of the issue and want help. Um, do you feel like there is a common root, emotional root in addiction? Do you feel like it usually starts in the same place for, for most people? Yeah, I do. I think it, it comes from a trauma almost always. And again, I think we talked about this last time, but trauma is a big word. It doesn't necessarily mean abuse, neglect, or a natural disaster. Uh, it just means something that shifted the way that you saw the world. And so I believe that any time that we have a trauma involving disconnection with ourselves, with our creator, or with other people, that starts the beginning of addiction. Is that what your theory is? 
Yeah. And I, the word shame comes up a lot because I feel like shame is the one thing that makes us want to isolate and hide um, where we feel like we're not good enough to connect or, you know, there's something inherently wrong with us, not other people, but, you know, we can't be uh, deeply connected with other people because they might see what's wrong with us. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so I, anyway, I think that shame it plays a big part in the isolation uh, that you talked about. Um, okay, so let's talk about facets of addiction because, you know, I, we've mentioned enough now that it's, it's not just a chemical dependency, like with some of the common addictions. So what are some of the different facets of addiction and kind of how it keeps us reined in? Mm-hmm. So addiction, because it is a way of resolving pain, create some chemicals in our body like dopamine, serotonin, and those kinds of things are really addictive um, because our brain likes to feel good. We don't like to feel pain. We weren't created to feel pain for long periods of time. So then we actually, your brain and your body start creating those things only when you're using those substances or that doing that behavior. Um, And then that kind of becomes a problem because you don't feel normal or good or happy unless you're using, but the using in itself is pulling away from happiness. So that true good feeling never comes. And so then your body keeps creating and keeps craving and keeps craving for some people, especially like with opiates um, and substances, the body will actually create pain, physical pain in order to draw people in to use the substance again. It is amazing. Our bodies are well old machines Um, They know what they're doing and they will find a way to get what they want one way or the other for sure. Wow. So we, yeah, it was like when we entertain the addiction, we're just concreting that like route in our brain directly toward that, making it stronger and stronger and stronger. Well, there's a lot of science to back up that it, that addiction actually creates a pathway in the brain that, I mean, they can, see it, you know, when the brains are scanned, Mm -hmm. it creates a pathway in the brain that, you know, a a non-addicted brain does not have. Um, And they've kind of wondered like chicken or egg, like what do you, are you born with that pathway? And then, so you're more likely to Mm -hmm. walk into addiction. Like, you know, I guess that would bring in the genetic side of it or does it develop the more you, the more addicted you become? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Science is still torn about that. You're right. It's the chicken or the egg. What we do know is that the only way to treatment is to, you know, accept that that's not something that you can handle on your own and move forward through that. So the disease model, which is that like your brain was born this way and that kind of thing is found to not be effective in treatment and it actually perpetuates addiction. So you're right. Like some people are more vulnerable to the effects of alcohol and drugs. They may, um, concrete those pathways a lot faster based on genetics, right? We teach our children. It's a, it's a theory called epigenetics. Um, the way that we react in our world today, even if your children are outside of your body already affects the way their brain is wired. So if I am drinking, I am there for in my children who are born walking around in the world, I am therefore concreting this pathway towards alcohol as a use. Um, even if they're not using it yet, And so then when they do start using it, it's already there, right? It's not a dirt path through the woods that they can experiment and try. It's like an interstate and it's ready. And so then to get off the interstate and take an old back road that you've never used before, it's kind of hard to do if that metaphor is not too out there. No, that Um, makes sense. 
Go ahead. Yeah, it's a lot like any health issue that I dig into. If I dig down to the root of something to help somebody, you know, heal their body. Um, like they'll say, oh, well, my mom had this or my mom had that. And I'll say, is this a genetic thing? And I'll say, well, that specific disease, there's no scientific you know, evidence to say that that disease is genetic. However, you share genes with your parents. And so they, the saying goes that um, genetics loads the gun, mm-hmm. but it's an environment that pulls the trigger. So you have a personal responsibility to create an environment that is um, healthy around you. You know, mm-hmm. to seek out a healthy environment, to surround yourself with healthy people and um, healthy tools and things like that. Um, but you could have the predisposition genetically to, to go toward a certain thing. Um, and diseases are, are the exact same way, I guess. Is that, the, is that kind of the same comparison? Yeah, it's exactly the same, right? Just because your parents had diabetes doesn't mean that you will necessarily have diabetes. However, like you're going to be more predisposed to that if you are using sugar excessively or, you know, not watching your food intake, um, not exercising, those kinds of things will like cause it to be more likely to develop into diabetes than just the average person. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we've talked a lot about just identifying (laughs) what addiction is and we probably all have one, at least, uh, that one thing that we route our brain toward to find happiness and it's a, you know, everyday daily effort to consciously create healthy habits in our life. Um, cause emotions are a big part of addiction, the chemical dependency, you know, that our body depends on that dopamine. And then we create a physical habit because we were out our environment around the addiction to either, you know, have our phone in our pocket or have a substance in our fridge. If it's, if it's that, that we're addicted to or whatever it is, we've created a habit, you know, around it. So there's all these different facets that we kind of have to think about. And, uh, you know, daily we, um, try to route our lives toward healthy habits if we're being intentional about it but this isn't just for the addict right I mean let's say a person is married to someone with a very visible um, debilitating addiction what responsibility and what challenges does that person that loved one in the life of the addict also deal with you know that's a great question I think that that is the hardest thing to watch someone that you love so very much struggle and hurt themselves, and keep themselves disconnected from you and those that you love. However, it's very much the same as treating addiction. We have to admit that we have no power over the person that isn't the addict. You know, we are not to, we are not at fault for their use or non-use of anything. We are not responsible for it, and nothing that we do can contribute or take away from their choices for how they live their life. And that in itself can be freeing, Um, And also real scary. Yeah. So, um, so like willpower really doesn't work very well for the person involved or the addict itself, right? You can't just wake up and say today's different. I mean, maybe some events in your life have been coming together and maybe today is the day, but um, you know, whether you're the loved one or the addict, it's really hard just to wake up and say, I'm going to kick this thing today. So I want us to kind of put together Uh, a protocol for both the addict and the loved one, because let's talk about how essential oils can interrupt this and how it can kind of, we talked about the low frequencies, how it can dissolve those low frequency emotions, interrupt the pattern um, and kind of open them up toward a path of healing. But uh, let's just talk about essential oils in general first, and then we'll break it down 
for the loved one and for the addict. Great. All right. So in your, I know you've used a lot of essential oils in your practice with people. What have you seen? Um, like we know, Val and I know that essential oils have an immediate reaction within your body. I mean, it doesn't immediately solve all your problems, but can you describe to us some of the immediate reactions you've seen in people that interrupt these negative patterns? Absolutely. So when you said like willpower, if we could do it on our own, we would have already done it on our own, right? Nobody wants to be miserable. We just can't see the way out. So that's the best thing about essential oils. They're this tool that when we put on, okay, those, that shame and guilt is just gone. And now I can see the situation for what it is and make a better choice, right? The answer is usually fairly logical, but if I tell them that's not helpful because they're seeing everything through the lens of shame and guilt, they put the essential oil on, the shame and guilt dissolves. Okay, okay, now I can actually see it logically. I see what you're saying. I see how this is not really helpful that I'm continuing to use this substance or act in this way. It's wonderful. Cool. All right, so let's put together a little protocol. Let's talk about some essential oils that might be helpful in like the early stages of maybe even identifying that you have an addiction or if you think, it's just if you think, like if you go, um, you, could, you said you made a flow chart and it's on your website, wildlycurative.com, right? Yes, ma'am, thank you. So if we go to that website and we look at that flow chart and we realize, okay, maybe my phone is a problem or maybe my sugar is a problem, um, you know, or, a, you know, a more serious addiction, which they're all serious. They all have an effect in our life, but some are more debilitating than others. If we go there and we find out, okay, I think I've got an addiction. What is the first oil that you think of to counteract that? It's definitely cedarwood. So the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. So there's been hundreds and hundreds of studies since the Vietnam War, um, when addiction really ramped up, that have proven that people who are connected to themselves, to God, and to others do not struggle with addiction in the same ways. So cedarwood is the oil of community and helps connect us to ourselves, to God, and to others. So that would be my first go-to for sure, cedarwood. All right, and so if we're the addict, we could apply cedarwood over the heart because that's the area of connecting to people, you think? Absolutely. Great choice. All right. Okay, but let's say that, let's just, let's just walk it out. Let's say, Val, interrupt me if you've got an idea, but I'm thinking the first thing that somebody, like they feel that urge to connect, and then the first drawback is, but I can't because of shame, fear, whatever kept them from connecting in the first place. What, what would you do then? Well, we're going to need a high vibrational oil to, to knock out some of those things. What are the options that you see available for that? Hmm. Well, I know rose is like the most amazing oil, like vibrationally ever. Um, I think frankincense because it sheds light and kind of like, yeah, you I know, in a dark room, that thing in the corner Absolutely. looks like a bigger monster than it is. But then you shine the flashlight on it and that giant shrinks down to a toy soldier or something, Absolutely. you know, something silly. Val, what do you think? Yeah, I think um, frankincense would be a great choice for that. Just, you know, the, the way that it does shed light, it, it's powerful, especially combined with the cedarwood. It would be amazing. So and maybe. it's the oil of truth. So bringing that truth into the situation, some wisdom on it, like, oh, here's what the real issue is. It's so helpful. And it's so wonderful to feel that insight like that. Yeah. And truth is never shaming. Never. True. Never. Okay. Very true. All right. So maybe some frankincense on the head, on the top of the head. 
the crown absolutely would be a good choice. So they can rush to all the organs. You know, when we have addiction, the chemicals that are produced in our brains, they had in our bodies everywhere. So it could be in your liver, like if it's alcohol or resentment, but it could also be hanging out in your spleen or your pancreas. Um, so those are all good places. The frankincense helps draw all that out and pinpoints the exact issue. So for sure on the top of the head, so it can rush through the whole body. Also, there's an acupuncture point. Were you going to say something, Bo? Oh, no, go ahead. There's an acupuncture point, like in the, is it the elbow creases inside your elbow crease that, that sends whatever you put there to your whole torso. Mm-hmm. So that might be mm-hmm. a good option too. Yeah, that would Absolutely. Be. Um, another oil that, you know, I was just thinking through, um, you know, if the issue is chemical, because from what I understand, once you stop, um, you know, if you're in the process of, of getting healthy, um, it takes a while for the chemical balance to come back to the brain. So one oil that I thought would just be really great would be helichrysum for a couple of reasons. Um, one, it boosts dopamine levels. So it mm-hmm. might be a good oil to take internally, maybe a couple of drops internally daily just to get those dopamine levels back up until they can normalize. Um, and then it also is emotionally such a powerful oil. It's, you know, basically liquid stitches for your inside. And so, you know, having the healing happening while you're boosting your dopamine levels, you're encouraging the um, truth and community and connectedness. It seems like those would be such a powerful combo together to kind of hit all the different angles. Oh, I absolutely agree. I think the whole liquid stitches aspect is so true because we know there is a lot of trauma and just healing that up um, to some extent so that you can see through for the next little bit so, so, in, so incredibly helpful. Yeah. Helichrysum, frankincense, cedarwood, all great options. And then together they're all amplified and more powerful as well. Yeah. And we could keep going on and on and on about the emotions involved in it and which oils would help. And, uh, but probably the most important thing at this point would be if you can do those things for yourself, now you need to admit, I can't do this alone. So call a counselor. Yes. <laughs> call a therapist. <laughs> get somebody to work you through it. All right. Okay. So now what about oils for the loved one in relationship with the addict? I mean, again, cedarwood is a great option because we want those people to feel connected and part of a community. That's why programs like Al-Anon and even AA are so helpful for people who do have a loved one that's an addict because it's a community of people to connect with. Um, But cedarwood is great with that. But also, we want them to have some personal responsibility. We were talking about this a little earlier. Fennel is a good option for that. Um, And I think fennel over the heart or even at the base of the belly button. Um, So that comes becomes a very deep part of ourselves. Our our very center is our own personal responsibility and not our responsibility for other people. That's good. (laughs) That's good. And because, you know, becoming a better version of yourself actually leads everybody around you and inspires them to become a better version of themselves not in a shaming way but in a an inspiring motivating encouraging way it just has an effect on everybody around you absolutely growth encourages growth yeah you can't change anybody else but you can change yourself and then I feel like as you up level your vibrations it up levels the people around you and it it's an awesome process to watch it unfold yeah and so in addition to not feeling responsible for the addict, but feeling responsible for yourself, building in some healthy boundaries would probably be a good idea too, so that maybe you've created a pattern of that addict drawing from your 
resources, your energy, your solutions, and maybe you need something to kind of help protect your energy, I guess, to work on you, let them work on them. Absolutely. So we know what that is, the best oil in the world. Yeah, Melaleuca. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe over the solar plexus? I think so, for sure. Excuse me. I think that's our area of our confidence, of our strength. And so putting it there gives us a lot more power to move through the day. Cool. So that's also um, diffuse lemongrass in your home um, just to clear out any negativity, you know, create a clean slate. Absolutely. Great point. Great point. So yeah, that there is no negative vibra- vibrations in your home, that we're Correct. all moving from a more positive, higher vibrational state. Absolutely. Great idea. Yeah. The home just feels lighter when you walk in. If lemongrass is being diffuse the whole the whole atmosphere the air just feels lighter it feels great so that's a good idea too okay so that's a that's a lot of information to start with so we're going to let people process that before we uh, drop anymore and in our next episode we're going to get deeper into a list of addictions some specific oils to help with those addictions and give you a new protocol to try all right sound good can't wait great